Well, hello, Wonder Peeps. Welcome to another Fuds on Film Spectacular. My name is Scott Morris, and I'm joined today by my heterosexual life partner, Drew Tavendale. Hello. <laughs> Blindsided by that. Um, flattered, I guess, though. <laughs> For entirely obvious reasons, which will be explained later after the show ends, we've decided today <laughs> to talk about two films based around, I guess, people's life being under some sort of external control. Uh, so we're talking today about The Truman Show and Cabin in the Woods, which do have some relative similarity between them so we will explore that as we go on but we're going to start first by talking about the Truman Show and Drew that's your responsibility and the heavy responsibility is Scott it weighs upon <laughs> one so <laughs> Truman Burbank lives in a delicacy haven a picturesque town where people smile at him all day every day and specifically at him he has a beautiful wife who Apart from those odd moments when she seems to be talking to no one in particular about retail products, seems to love and desire him. It is, seemingly, perpetually sunny. The streets are clean, the town is prosperous. If bordering on fascistic and municipal enforcement, everybody always seems pleased to see Truman, and he has a great lifelong friend. So why then is he not content? It's not, in fact... The creepy townsfolk who feel like they could have come out of an episode of Evie, Indiana. Especially those twins. <laughs> twins are creepy. Sorry if you're a twin. <laughs> but you're creepy. Nor is it the too pristine to be true town itself. Which, apart from Truman knowing no different, is in fact a real place, but not one I will ever be visiting, that's for sure. It has quite a bit of the... Well, the Evie, Indiana about it, actually. Also about the Port Marion about it. Yeah. <laughs> I kept spend expecting large white balloons. <laughs> well, if it's not that, perhaps it's many things. Beginning with the cryptic warning about his situation given to him by a woman he's never been able to forget, but has never seen again. But for our time with Truman, it very much begins with a sodding great stage light falling out of the sky. The local radio station may quickly put out a news story about an aeroplane shedding parts to placate Truman, but the truth is the stage light fell out of the roof of a stage. The biggest stage in the world, in fact. Complete with sun, moon, sea and weather. The stage where Truman lives. Place there's a baby. Truman is the world's biggest TV star. But doesn't know it. He's the star of the Truman Show. The only real person in the most successful reality show ever made. Where everyone from the guy selling newspapers to his wife and mother are paid actors and which an audience of billions watches as it is broadcast 24 hours every day. All of this is watched over by the self-important Christoph, a megalomaniac with a god complex who sees himself as a benevolent father, but is instead a tyrannical creator who must not be disobeyed or crossed. I forgot to actually write what happens in this, but Truman begins to suspect the reality and wants to break out. So, uh, <laughs> yes. summed that up in one sentence I forgot to actually write earlier. <laughs> I suspect the general concept of the Truman Show 20 years on is quite well known by now because it's become a touchstone for so many... Um, how to put that? Things? Mm, dystopias. <laughs> things, yes. It's been a common touchstone for so many things, um, <laughs> particularly dystopian things, and um, the problems of reality TV and constant surveillance, etc. With only a few minor exceptions, where actions don't necessarily make a lot of sense, the world of the Truman Show is so well crafted and very carefully and cleverly thought out. Mistakes and failures, like the aforementioned 
falling light are explained in the world alongside constant behavioural modifiers to discourage certain thoughts and actions. And while to the audience it might seem transparent and phony, Truman does not know any better. And how could he? But what of human nature? Why doesn't he want to leave the town, even for a day? Well, we learn that the death of his father in a childhood boating accident has permanently traumatised Truman, who can no longer cross water. Something of a problem if you live on an island. It is a cruel but brilliant stroke. As well as clearly very well considered, very clever writing, the performances are uniformly great. Most especially, and in most regards pretty shockingly, Jim Carrey, who, aside from a few teeth-clenching moments when he seems like Jim Carrey, is a warm, likeable and sympathetic presence as one of only two characters in the entire film not reprehensible and or complicit in the imprisonment of a human being for purposes of entertainment. Other roles of note are Laura Linney as Truman's wife Merrill, Harry Shearer's sycophantic interviewer, Noah Emmerich as best friend Marlon, and one of those great doesn't see himself as a villain performances which Ed Harris is so good at as mm. Christoph. There's a sheer direction from Peter Weir and a sparkling script from Gattaca scribe Andrew Nichol. And like the best science fiction, it asks questions, often very tough questions, of the contemporary world and of the audience itself. It can be viewed in so many ways too. As a critique of the entertainment industry? Witness the incredibly on-the-nose name of Carrie's character, the true man from Burbank, the area of Los Angeles famous as the home of many movie studios, and in a connected manner the fact that so many of the characters, Merrill, Merrill, Marlon, Lauren, are all named after incredibly famous actors and actresses. It could also be seen as a pastiche of the supposedly idyllic small-town America, as, well, you know what, you could talk rather a lot about the many, often very prescient and still relevant themes, so let's do that, shall we? Um, assuming Scott wants to, rather than me continuing to drone on alone. <laughs> yeah, this, as happens so often in this little uh, sub-show that we do, uh, was the first time we've seen the Truman Show. Really? Uh, I suspect because it, uh, I, wasn't Man, watching, me. I wasn't watching a lot of films back in 98, and I suspect by the time it came out on video or something, I'd probably already just knew what it was just by cultural osmosis and didn't feel the need to actually watch it but no it's it's really good um, in particular as you mentioned the Jim Carrey performance now viewing it from today uh, I know that Jim Carrey can do great performances in fact his straight uh, acting performances generally are pretty good even when he's in some really bad films yeah uh, whereas but, his, his Jim Carrey performances are intolerable yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and this perhaps is the best blend of them because it, it does have the kind of the goofiness that uh, Carrie's renowned for, what made him his money, and but it's also got just the, the tremendous, very easily connectable um, emotional performances that he gives. It's uh, got various points through it exactly. So yeah, it's not a revelation by this point to me that Jim Carrey can do well, but I mean it, that he was doing it this early perhaps was because I would have before this thought. Uh, I'd maybe have to wait till, oh, I don't know, Man on the Moon or uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, whichever one came first, to you know think of him as a good actor, whereas you know, he, clearly he's had the chops from, from uh, fairly early on. So that, that was an interesting little revelation. But the rest of the film, yes, really good, um, and I would probably need longer 
to eschew to get the, the, the best of it. But I mean, if this felt relevant in 98, it must feel even more relevant today, um, yeah. given the state of the, the world. And the, the, the point of Truman being the first kids to be raised by a corporation might have seemed silly in 98, but now we're in the current day where you know we've determined uh, the American Supreme Court that companies have freedom of speech because they're you know, legally persons. It's actually now not inconceivable that they could be given the the rights to raise a kid. It's, it's actually not that far f- removed from where we are just now, uh, which is terrifying. And terrifying, of course, it's yes. very prescient in terms of what happened with reality uh, TV entertainment and the kind of dominance that that's had over the, the television landscape over the past uh, decade or so. So, yeah, there's lots of incredibly interesting things that you could get into here. But over and above all that, it's just a really entertaining film and mm-hmm. still is... Uh, 20 odd, was it 20 years? Is this, this 20 years this year, yes. Yeah, 20 years later, um, still uh, a really great film. Peter Weir is a filmmaker again who I've not seen an awful lot of, but most of the things that I've seen have liked in some way or at least could appreciate. Um, I know Master and Commander was not the, the most uh, critically loved film in the world, but I, I always appreciated it just because I like seeing seafaring adventures. Yeah, uh, but, I, we were talking about this a while ago, Scott. Yeah. We might actually revisit Master and Commander perhaps in a compare and contrast sometime soon. It's like, I think that that film was largely done to disservice by the fact they stopped for half an hour to wander across the Galapagos, and without that, it might <laughs> yeah. have been a much more compelling film. Mm-hmm. But yes, it's a really well-made film, really well-crafted, lots of really great observations, and yeah, just really great performances all the way throughout. It it manages that a great trick of feeling as though it should be some knockabout comedy by the tone that's taking that, that's kind of being created artificially on it, but at the same time being really disturbing underneath it all. Um, and yeah, so it's obviously a, <laughs> the human rights conditions that Truman's under is uh, clearly just intolerable but him not knowing that that's the case is, is just the kicker to it all that you, you, you would as uh, Christoph says you would you would never question this reality if this was the only one that was presented to you so why yeah, would so you think you never, it you never saw any other films or television programs that would make you think this wasn't how everything was yeah yeah, yeah no um, really powerful work and uh, something that's absolutely essential viewing for everyone I don't know what was going on at the end of the 90s. It was a a small group of people who just saw things in a much more accurate manner than most of the world because there's a a really small group of incredibly present things from around that time. I think probably for you, Scott, you'll seems to me like the most obvious one is Brass Eye. Yeah. Chris, compare that, add that to the day-to-day from the mid-90s and Chris Morris is some sort of mega-seer. (laughs) Yeah. He's like a true Nostradamus because he's just foreseen so many weird, crazy things that have happened in media. And the Truman Show very much fits in with that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost as relevant today as it was then. Perhaps more so since so much of this in many ways has actually come to pass. Not so much the rise of reality television, though that's part of it, but more just the the observing of people's lives like that and that becoming people's lives becoming entertainment yeah um, and in many ways people not really knowing that that's the case too the majority of the programs are um, reality tvs reality tv shows which are generally scripted but there are things there that are kind of real life stuff that people don't really know is happening or are fully mm-hmm. aware of quite how it's happening and so it's got that going for it and then from reading some reviews from the time 
there's a lot of people saying like, how ridiculous and self-important a character Christoph seems. <laughs> I like I got fifty percent of the reviews from the time that I read went out of the way to say yeah. And if you ask anybody working in TV or film, they know <laughs> someone like this. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, and yet, so you do get people like that who believe like that what they're doing is good and right, and that it's okay to mess with a person's life if you're entertaining more people and stuff. It's like yeah, it's not. <laughs> but uh, it makes for an interesting topic because people do believe that and it's the sort of thing that nowadays things like Black Mirror kind of have, are doing this sort of stuff now but they're kind of a horrible dystopia where everybody's watching and therefore everybody's complicit in this imprisonment of this person mm-hmm. um, and yeah you're talking about the corporate rights thing and like the, the, this corporation had adopted a baby but yeah that doesn't give you a right to imprison them certainly not when they're an adult yeah and also it, it's it's clearly an absolute wrong but then you would have people argue well what if this person doesn't know and as far as i'm concerned there is no argument well no it's this entire thing's based on deception deception's wrong people have to make choices for themselves nobody is uh truman's friend because they want to be Nobody's in a relationship with Truman because they want to be. It's because they're paid to be. Yeah, which takes on a particular cadence when you you think of the, Truman's wife, Laurel uh, Angelonis, who's about to have a baby with him. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's and some commitment to the role. If that's yeah, the case. it's obviously part of the contract, and it's obviously going to be part of the contract for the person they replace her with, because Christoph does mention that he still wants to have the first on-air conception. Yeah, you know, so this is our goal. But see, there's the thing: that person has a choice. Yeah. Because Truman is being manipulated in so many ways, he doesn't. So, as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's an absolute wrong, it's a deception. But it still raises really interesting philosophical questions like that. It's like, you know, if this person's happy and fed, there's a lot of horrible things happening in the world, you know, is it absolutely wrong? You can certainly have the discussion, and there's, there's so many things in Truman's show that could actually raise points for a philosophical, ethical discussion. Yeah. And like, because I mean, I, we're all complicit in it, like, we all benefit from, even whether we know it or not, or know it and try not to think about it, or know it and just, and don't even have to try not to think about it, that we all benefit from child labour and um, really poor working conditions and stuff that allow us to have our cheap clothes and our fancy electronics and things, but it's like kind of outside, out of mind thing, mm-hmm. which is still wrong, but I don't know, it's kind of, Excuse isn't quite the word I want, but whereas in this case, these people are directly complicit in the imprisonment of a person. They are watching this person. It's not even a case of, oh, well, I don't actually know about how these mines work in the Congo, getting all the stuff for mobile phone batteries out of or whatever. Mm. Or I don't like really know how this factory in Bangladesh is working, but these people are actually sitting there day after day after day watching this person be manipulated and it's so you've got a really interesting idea of like I mean does it stop being wrong if everybody does it again obviously not but (laughs) when it's such a a huge collective thing and that clearly law enforcement governments everything are clearly okay with it because it's been going on for 30 years and this person's been in a prison for 30 years but televised so there's there's (laughs) some blame all the way to um, bottom to top but okay because it's so easy to believe that it could happen yeah, you know, but the only really hard bit to believe is the size of the studio, because the cameras yeah. are all believable certainly now, and that it'd be a huge logistical problem or logistical undertaking 
but you could imagine that it could with careful plan and work that you could have the people on set every day to do their things whatever but yeah the only other th- the thing that isn't believable is the the stage because it's just it's too vast and took an entire weather system and a believable sun hmm. but the actual the actions of the people the actions of the viewers all very believable it really raises questions about what we're like as a species or certainly as a society yeah it's not what I would typically have expected 20 years ago from a Jim Carrey film yeah <laughs> What I think is a master role because when this film ended, the first thing I immediately thought was, I really want to see what happened when Truman gets out. But it's probably very much for the best that it ends just at that point. And I think it's really capped by the scene immediately after that, where it's like the couple of security guards are watching it and go, Oh, hey, hey, that was a thing. What else is on telly? Yeah. <laughs> how, how quickly it just sort of becomes nothing. <laughs> it's, it's now yesterday's news. Yeah, uh, that's an absolutely damning indictment of of the audience and again mm-hmm. an absolutely believable one they're really captivated by this thing and seeing this pivotal moment in an actual real person's life and it's like ah, okay what's on the next channel and it's like yeah. you know it's, <laughs> and it's gone out of their, their minds so quickly mm-hmm. also nice to see Scully from Brooklyn Nine-Nine <laughs> that's true <laughs> Scully oh <laughs> um, we'd never have known who he was back then but yes absolutely nothing to do with anything it just it amused me to see him that's all <laughs> So, from a a hidden camera show, which was watched by everybody, but for entirely for entertainment, I guess, of sorts, a hidden camera show watched by no one, but allegedly, although I'm not convinced to believe it, allegedly for the benefit of all. <laughs> yes, uh, we are talking about the cabin in the woods, and I suppose we... Get unavoidably into spoilers discussing anything substantial in this film. Indeed, even contextualising it alongside the Truman Show could be considered a spoiler. Uh, but if you're interested, you'd had a long enough to get to this film. Um, otherwise, I suppose you ought to stop listening. Um, I like the film. If that helps you make any decisions, yes. Yeah, so one of the few cases where, in the in the pre-production hype and the trailers that came out, it really didn't give the game away at all. So. I feel I should give that some credence. Uh, it is probably best left, uh, probably best enjoyed knowing very little about it. But oh, yes. I managed to go all the way up until you said we're going to do the Truman Show in the cabin in the woods. And I'm like, there's a connection between those two. Mm. Um, last week, that so clearly I've entirely avoided knowing anything <laughs> about it until I watched yes. it. So it's definitely possible. So you should probably stop listening now if you haven't seen it already. <laughs> Uh, So in what's at least initially presented to us as a horror film, uh, five college students head off to a cabin in the woods, surprisingly enough, uh, where things start to go bump in the night. So far, so wildly formulaic. But with the direction and co-writing credits going to Buffy the Vampire Slayer Drew Goddard and co-written by Buffy creator Joss Whedon, uh, you can probably expect the tone changes quite rapidly. Uh, Said youngsters are Kristen Connolly's Dana, Chris Hemsworth, Kurt, Anna Hutchison's Jules, Jesse Williams Holden, and Fran Kranz's Marty. The wee-daddled Marty seems to be the only one of these that fits neatly into a stereotypical box, but, well, we'll fix that later. Uh, While our contingents of young adults are being warned by a creepy backwards petrol station attendant of their imminent peril, Gary Sitterson, Richard Jenkins, uh, and Steve Hadley, played by... 
Bradley Whitford monitor their progress. Before long, we piece together that they are, in, they are in charge of the USA's end of a ritual sacrifice to the unspeakable old gods of whom we shall not speak. The ritual happens to look a lot like a stereotypical Yank slasher film because, well, that's part of the ritual. Other countries run similar rituals, including those smug Japanese with their creepy, long, raven-haired, child ghoul-based freak show that always goes without a hitch. Once the kiddos get to the cabin, a selection of mood and behaviour-altering drugs are secreted into the air, bringing the characters a little bit closer to the stereotypical horror type. Uh, investigating the cabin, they find a basement full of curios, an unwitting menu of their doom. Unwittingly unleashing a family of murderous hillbilly zombies, the slaughter starts to occur to plan until, well, it doesn't, causing increased tensions in the directorial bunker that are perhaps best left unspoken of. Uh, while it is nominally a horror film, Cabin is very much closer in tone to The Evil Dead 2 than, well, The Evil Dead 1, and your mileage may vary, but I found Cabin very funny on initial release, and just about as funny today. It is, as you'd hopefully expect, all rather Whedon-esque, with all the dialogue and postmodern fourth-wall endangerment that goes along with that, uh, and as someone who's not always completely on board with that sort of thing, uh, this affectionate parody of horror norms may well be the perfect place for it. Viewed as a comedy, and that's really the only lens worth considering here, I think that this lands pretty successfully, which mitigates my only real niggle rewatching it, the rather budget-constricted CG of the final act. Uh, but played for laughs, I don't think that matters so much. If you were hoping for this film to be scary, well, uh, as well as being funny, well, you may be less positively disposed to it. But, well, uh, if you can get over that hurdle, I think this is quite an enjoyable watch. Yeah. Cabin in the Woods. It's definitely a thing. <laughs> Turns out it's a thing I hate. So <laughs> I know that now. So that's good. Uh, I, I know this is supposed to be a sort of if not a pastiche of horror, then certainly a kind of poking fun at the typical tropes of that kind of teen horror thing. Yeah. But I didn't care about anyone in the film. I was bored from beginning to end and I wasn't scared once. It could just have been a horror film as far as I can tell. <laughs> Serious request, by the way, that's coming up now. See if anybody can suggest to me an actual scary horror film. Please, please write in to us like, on Twitter at Fuds and Film or podcast at fudsandfilm.com. I want to be scared. I just don't think I ever have. And I'm not saying that out of bravado or anything. I've read numerous terrifying books. I don't think a film's ever scared me apart from it. Like, being deeply unsettled by The Omen, which I probably watched when I was far too young. For some reason, I was scared by bits of Drag Me to Hell. Apparently I'm terrified of goats, and I never knew that. Um, <laughs> but, yeah... Films don't scare me, so when you hear me banging on about horror films, it's generally because I think they're terrible, but also, they're never scary. So, if anybody has a suggestion of an actually scary film, give it to me, please. I want to be scared. Hmm. I would argue in this instance, this isn't really supposed to be scary. No, um, I know. But, I'm, I'm, it's a bit of a tangent relating yeah. to horror, Scott. <laughs> I mean, the question is more, did you find it funny? And I presume you didn't, what you're saying. No, not even <laughs> slightly. Um, <laughs> Joss Whedon stuff does generally leaves me cold more often than it kind of gets me going. Um, there are bits. I really like Firefly and I like Doctor Horrible a lot. So maybe it's just like Nathan Fillion and I don't like Jaws Whedon because <laughs> a lot of it's, it's like, I can't be, I find Buffy unwatchable. And there are, there's perhaps two lines 
that are decidedly Whedon-y in Alien Resurrection that I really like. The rest is pretty terrible. His stuff in that recent Superman, Batman, Merman film, uh, <laughs> it's, I don't know if it suffered actually from him coming to do the reshoots after Zack Snyder had to leave, but just didn't do an awful lot for me. So yeah, I, I don't really dig Joss Whedon that much. I wonder if that was part of it. But I don't remember laughing at this. I was slightly hooked by the mystery of quite what was going on. Mm-hmm. But they, they more or less straight up tell you about a third of the way into the film, maybe half a push, halfway into the film, a push. Yeah. And it's like, oh, it's David, please. The old gods like, ah, okay, you've satisfied that curiosity and I now really don't care about this film. <laughs> I don't know, also part maybe delivery. Because I know there's the that the guy who's a kind of classic stoner guy and he's kind of playing with the tropes of that stoner character. Yeah, well, Francis just, France is basically playing Shaggy off Scooby-Doo. Yeah, he's, he's basically <laughs> Shaggy off Scooby-Doo, yeah. <laughs> uh, even looks like him. Uh, but I just, I, I could, the, there was a couple of his lines I thought, why am I not laughing at this? <laughs> because I was like, like part of my brain was aware of like, this kind of seems to be funny. I just think it was terrible delivery. <laughs> so maybe that's just bad direction. I don't know whether it's acting or direction there because it, it just didn't, they never quite hit right. The few things that I thought I ought to be entertained by. And then I don't know whether part of it's just because I don't watch much horror because I'm never scared by horror, so it never does anything for me. Whether there are some sort of general tropes that I, that I don't get. So perhaps some of the, the jokes weren't landing for that reason. Mm. I was just bored by it. I mean, I don't think anybody in it is particularly bad, but the the bimbo character who they, they put stuff in her hair dye to make her dumb, it's like, yeah, that character's boring in every other film. The pastiche of it, yeah, just as boring. Chris Hemsworth may as well have been anybody else because I like Chris Hemsworth a lot. I don't think he really did anything of interest in this film. No, so sad to say this film's an absolute dud for me. You didn't even um, get anything out of Richard Jenkins. No. No, oh. and that, that's exactly what I was about to mention. I love <laughs> Richard Jenkins. I think he's fantastic and he did nothing for me in this film. Oh, that's a shame. I, I think it's funny and that's not really something that's not really something that is much of a, a useful metric for anyone else. I think it's funny. If you like the sort of things I think is funny, then you may think this is funny, but you're never going to know until we actually see it. No, see I, it. I, I mean, anybody listening is probably very familiar with this now. It's one of the reasons that we're friends. We've been friends for so long and also with Craig. I typically do find the things that you find funny, funny. You know, <laughs> uh, but in this case, absolutely not. No, it's just the Sigourney Weaver turn off the end. It just feels like stunt casting. And that kind of irritated me too. Hmm. I don't know. It's just, yeah. I guess, I mean, if I, again, if I, if I was more familiar with horror films, maybe I'd have got more of it if they're playing with the tropes of that. But I'm pretty sure I'm familiar enough with most of them. And I was just like, eh, go, go and just end. Uh, this is not good. No. Did nothing for me. Absolutely nothing. Aboo. <laughs> Can't really defend it anything any more than that because uh, it is really it's so just difficult a- with anything that's humour based, isn't it? It's like you, you yeah. like it, you don't. It's it's harder to have our sort of vigorous um, back and forth about something like that. Yeah, see, it's it's definitely all about weedy. If that is not your bag in general, then you're not going to like this. It's uh, what you say about the delivery, I think, is because everything's delivered in that kind of Whedon-esque sort of glib off-handedness. And I suppose if I did have one criticism, it's that that attitude is across pretty much every character. You know, 
no one's really taking it at all seriously, even the people who are in imminent danger of being attacked by a ghoul. <laughs> you know, um, everyone's got the same sort of snarky clip comments, and maybe it would work better if that was limited to fewer characters. There was only a few characters that were trying to make these kind of jokes uh, in one part. Um, maybe that's that's part of it. Whereas in this one, at the very least, you've got Marty and. Richard Jenkins and Bradley Whitford and all they're all doing the same things and Chris Hemsworth to a degree and other guys. So yeah, there's maybe too many people trying to be funny in it, whereas it may be better if it was a, a bit more traditional in that regard. But uh, I thought it worked. I was on board with this because I was happy enough just accepting it as a pastiche rather than uh, attempting to map any sort of <laughs> real horror onto it. Uh, maybe it's just a uh, was just. I enjoyed it so much in back in the day because it was a bit of a release of tension because we'd, me, me and Greg had tortured herself with so many terrible, terrible teen or horror <laughs> films back in the day from, you know, we, we went to the cinema to see House of Wax. What sort of person yeah. in the right mind would do that? And, and, well, and the, me because I was also yes. there for that. <laughs> it's a terrible, terrible horror film and it also has Paris Hilton in it. Yes. What were we smoking? Or what should we have been smoking since we never smoked anything? So, <laughs> so that and uh, all these other garbage ones like... All the um, Rob Zombie stuff. <sighs> yeah. And some Thousand Corpses and things. And, and and those were actually some of the more interesting ones compared to the ones that were really de-oriented stuff. But, uh, I mean, yeah. I suppose that did bring us the great Sid Haig moment of um, I'm going to have to take your car for some official clown business. <laughs> Yeah, Sid Haig's always good value for money and anything. But yeah, to, to the point of Gavin of the Woods, yeah, um, I think it's funny, and there's a chance you may think it's funny if you liked the Josh whedon stuff in... If you liked the lighter-hearted moments in, I guess, the Avengers films would probably be the most obvious tone comparison that most people would have seen because, well, it's the Avengers and everyone saw the Avengers. Yeah, yeah it's closer to that than anything else. Uh, I, would, um, I would just say, just because, in case you just think I'm a terrible killjoy or something, or I'm not getting it, there is another from, must be around about the same time. It's not really similar to the content of the film, but another kind of pastiche or playing with tropes of horror films, comedy, actually with a Joss Whedon uh, connection, at least with Alan Tudyk, but that I really like, which is Tucker and Dale versus Evil. So I can be on board with something kind of upending the idea of horror tropes. Mm. And I thought that was a really good film. So I don't know, that's maybe useful to if that's useful to judge your yeah. um, opinion against but I, I could not stand the cabin of the woods but really like <laughs> tucker and dale versus evil yes and i suppose i mentioned it earlier if you if you are in the mood for a kind of horror comedy thing then obviously the evil dead 2 and the evil dead 3 army of darkness are better than anything yeah, well, in army the world of darkness is <laughs> awesome bruce campbell's fantastic and just the the bim stick stuff and shop at s smart i don't know it's, i really really like army of darkness yes We'll need to start. We're going to talk about Evil Dead soon, I think. Always, always want an excuse to go back and watch those. So, although I'm disappointedly finding that my um, Evil Dead Two Book of the Dead edition is uh, basically falling apart. It's but, that I, was, I was just about to mention that. Actually. <laughs> I don't know what mine's like. I'm actually not sure whether I've got Evil Dead or Evil Dead Two in that with the the Book of the Dead because they released both films in a very very mm. similar special edition packaging. Yes, I think, I think mine was left out in the sun a bit too long. It's now flaking <laughs> apart, and uh, yeah, it's very I'm sad. Just, <laughs> I bet the rubber is absolutely honking now. <laughs> yes. I, I don't want to pick it up in case it's just absolutely stinking. It's got the feeling it's all rotted or something. Yeah, so it was the best um, special edition I think I've ever seen in terms of packaging. Oh, it's horrible. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but now maybe not so much. <laughs> we have some feedback uh, about 
some of these films. I do believe, Mr. Scott. Mr. Uh, Scott. Scott. Why, why we're so formally, apparently as heterosexual life partners calling you Mr. Scott. <laughs> That's just Ooh, weird. My Sunday name. Um, <laughs> yes, I guess, just following on from the Cabin in the Woods discussion, um, at Blake writes, a perpetual dumb machine on the Twitters, uh, from the I'm the Host podcast, it feels like uh, Cabin in the Woods has somehow run the full critical gamut from obscure to champions to overrated all while remaining a cult film. Uh, I recommend a watch to any horror fan because of the comic timing and set pieces, but the third act is rocky and the ending falls pretty flat. Blake goes on to say, from the, it's going back to the Truman show, uh, he thinks that Truman might be the only Jim Carrey vehicle with real lasting appeal, aside from Eternal Sunshine perhaps, with the caveat that my septuagenarian dad still praises Dumb and Dumber as the pinnacle of modern <laughs> comedic acting. <laughs> Uh, Truman was and is an incisive piece for the Times re-postmodern reality TV, uh, social media, corporate rights, and the struggle for genuineness. I think I would add in Man in the Moon to that, um, his list yes. of James yes. films. Yes, otherwise I would largely agree with that. And he thinks that there's room for a sequel in which the dome no longer safely contains the show and we all search for a place to escape to. Which is what we call Earth. We're living in that bleak. It's the worst. Also on the Twitters, at Sonic Yoda. The Truman Show is pure lightning in a bottle. A carey performance that shows how broad his acting style can be and also a scarily accurate description of the way television would evolve in the following years. Yes, uh, agreed entirely. Uh, yeah. um, yes, strangely prescient given the subject. Yeah, I saw that scene too. It's like, there's, there's a whole group of things around that time and it's like, did they have some sort of crystal ball or something or just really able to see how the industry was going? But it's... It is frighteningly prescient in many ways. And sorry, Scott, just before we sign off, uh, just talking about Jim Carrey's performances there too, and to echo something you mentioned, uh, our discussion of films on film, I caught up on your recommendation just a couple of days ago with the Jim and Andy documentary. All right, yeah. And it's brilliant. That's one of the most rewarding documentaries I've seen in a long time. And I had... It always seemed from the outside that Jim, because I, I, Jim Carrey being Jim Carrey was intolerable. I can't stand things like the Masquerade <laughs> Ventura. Whereas even just reined in a little, you could do something like Bruce Almighty, kind of bog standard Hollywood comedy. It was still quite entertaining because mm-hmm. it wasn't just being Jim Carrey. And then, I mean, absolute trash like number 23. Yeah. He's still got a good performance, right? Yeah. Um, what he was in was absolutely terrible I didn't deserve it but yes he's capable of really good performance and I actually thought it was so much to do with the director being able to really get out of him Mm -hmm. you watch the um, that documentary Jim and Andy where he looks like he'd be in an absolute nightmare on set yeah Um, (laughs) but it it almost doesn't seem self-indulgent when you watch it it's more like he it's almost believable that he felt he was like a different person or something it was like in a completely different mindset yeah (laughs) <laughs> um, and then Milos Forman was able to somehow coax this thing. How <laughs> you sure? How I'm not sure how you would describe Kerry in that. But produce this really rewarding film out of it, and then so yeah, actually, when you see Jim Kerry being interviewed, because um, it's beyond method acting, mm. um, and it's the way he talks about it and the, the clips they show that you know I can't believe that he actually really felt like he was. Inhabiting or being perhaps being inhabited by Andy yeah. Kaufman, not necessarily like in like a ghost sort of way, but that there was something a bit, well, there's kind of like some sort of dissociated personality or something, but I do actually 
believe what he's saying there. Mm. And regardless, it's a really fascinating, really rewarding documentary. So if you've got any interest in Jim Carrey's acting at all and like that film in particular, uh, Man and Moon, watch Jim and Andy because it's so, so good. Yeah, it really is. Um, yeah, really, really interesting looking into how he manages slash doesn't manage the role <laughs> yeah. in the performance. Yeah. I know it would have made for a kind of unpleasant working experience, but at the same time, he wasn't abusing anybody, you know, physically or mentally or sexually or anything. So it's like, it was just your pain in the arse co-worker. Yeah. <laughs> and you got a really good performance service. So it's like, yeah, maybe it wasn't a great deal of fun for other people, but it wasn't like, you know, mentally torturing them or anything like you, you've heard about it in so many ways. And it wasn't, he was still turning up every day doing the work. So it wasn't like, you know, Marlon Brando being mm. completely disrespectful of people's time. But yeah, it's it's a thoroughly, thoroughly fascinating documentary. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that's your lot for today. Um, if you would like to get in touch with us, then you're more than welcome to do so. We heartily encourage such activity. Uh, you can do so probably most easily on Twitter. We're there uh, at Fuds on Film. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash Fuds on Film. Or you can go the old-fashioned email route with podcast at com. So thanks very much for your attention. And until next time. We bid you adieu. I've been Scott Morris. Drew Tavendale has still been Drew Tavendale, I assume. All theatres then. Farewell. Farewell.